A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So I know we regularly hear these stories about the downsides of texting, you know, Mm -hmm. the dangers of texting while driving or all these stories about how we're no longer present because we're looking at our phones when we're around family and friends. But there was actually a study I was reading recently, and it was from the journal Pain Medicine, and it showed the benefits of texting during surgery. Huh, so I, I'm guessing we're not talking about major surgeries here. Well, yeah, I mean, we're talking about surgeries where the patient is still awake and, and often feeling some kind of discomfort or pain during that surgery. Mm-hmm. So the study involved 100 patients, and they were having these minor surgeries, and they had them do three different things. So some of the patients were asked to text, some were playing Angry Birds, and some <laughs> were doing nothing. And they found that of the three groups, those who were texting actually had the least need for additional narcotics. And they also experienced the greatest relief from that pain. But here's what's most weird about it. The effect was most profound when they were texting with a complete stranger. Really? Not not like someone you know and someone who cares about you? Well, I, actually, I'm sure there's some benefit to that as well. But the greatest benefit was when they were texting with someone they didn't know. And they think it has to do with the type of conversation you'd have with a loved one versus, you know, one with somebody that you don't know. Mm. So think about it. With a loved one, if you're in a lot more pain, you're you're likely to be talking about what's on your mind with that or what's bothering you. But with a stranger, you kind of have to put on a happy face and be a little bit more positive in sure, your interaction. Sure. You want to make a good impression. And that somewhat forced positive attitude actually helped them withstand a higher level of pain. And that's really fascinating. It's also kind of cool to think that your phone's best app is as a painkiller. That's right. That's exactly <laughs> right. And it's a reminder that pain itself is such a strange thing. And while there are multiple ways to manage certain pain, it feels like most people aren't all that familiar with the differences among some of the major forms of pain relief. So on today's episode, we're going to focus on the science behind the things like ibuprofen, acetaminophen, aspirin, as well as some others. And along the way, we'll dive into some of the most surprising forms of pain relief. So let's get started. Hey, 
Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikater. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, sorting his meds into a massive 365-day <laughs> pill organizer. Unbelievable. <laughs> That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. I mean, I've got to say the sheer level of micromanagement on display here is both kind of inspiring, but also a little bit unnerving at the same time. <laughs> so kudos to you, Tristan. I mean, it's especially interesting because the only pills he actually takes are those Flintstones chewable vitamins, mm-hmm. which makes that giant pill caddy a little like overkill. Well, Tristan refuses to take shortcuts. you got to respect <laughs> him for that. And speaking of shortcuts, today we're talking about common painkillers, you know, which have become many people's go-to quick fix for everything from headaches to hangovers and Most of us keep at least one of these over-the-counter medications on standby in the medicine cabinet or next to us, but, you know, whether that's aspirin or ibuprofen or Tylenol. Mm -hmm. But despite that ubiquity, few of us could tell you even the most basic facts about the pills that we so readily swallow. In fact, according to a 2001 survey from the National Council on Patient Information and Education, only one-third of the public is able to identify the active ingredient in their painkiller of choice. And with over-the-counter pain relievers accounting for over $5 billion in sales last year, that's a big chunk of the population that medicates with something they really don't know that much about. So for today's episode, we're actually going to shine some light on the little-known facts behind a few of the world's most commonly taken but least understood medications. So we'll try to get an idea of where they come from and what they're best suited for, as well as what the future of pain management might look like. All right, Mango, so where do you think we should start? So, I mean, this might sound a little basic, but I I thought it'd be helpful to start with a quick refresher on what pain really is and how a non-prescription painkiller actually works to relieve it. So, for the first part of that, pain is really just this early warning system. It's our body's way of letting us know that we're injured or even that we're doing something that we probably should stop doing. So, for instance, if you put your hand on a hot stove, special nerve receptors in your skin will actually respond to the damage from the heat. And that sensation is then sent as a chemical message to the spinal cord and your brainstem. And from there, the message travels to the brain, which is where the sensation is registered and processed and finally perceived as pain. I mean, that's a helpful description, but it is kind of weird to take a step back and think about it. Like, it almost makes it sound kind of bureaucratic, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, like, this pain is this memo that's got to be passed around from office to office, got to get everybody's approval, and then it finally gets to the big boss upstairs, you know? Right. So it obviously takes more time to describe the experience of feeling the pain than it actually does to feel it, which is pretty much instantaneous. But it's still helpful to know the ins and outs of the process because that's ultimately how painkillers work. Like they interfere with the body's transmissions of pain signals. And this is where the difference between painkillers comes in, too, because each kind targets a different point in the communication chain. So, for example, aspirin and ibuprofen are NSAIDs, and that's N-S-A-I-D, which stands for non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. These medications cut off the pain signals at the site of the injury, but something like acetaminophen, which is a different kind of pain reliever, works much differently. All right, and we'll obviously get to that one, but why don't we stick to the NSAIDs for now? So how does one of these run interference on these pain signals? Sure. So when the nerve receptors in our cells are damaged, they produce chemicals that perform a variety of functions, right? Some lower the pain threshold in the injured cells to make sure we get the message. Others produce inflammation and swelling as a way to cushion the cells from further injury. All right. So these chemicals must be what the NSAIDs are targeting, right? Like since they're anti-inflammatories? Right. So an NSAID like aspirin works by halting the production of the chemicals responsible for the pain and swelling. And the aspirin binds with the enzymes that produce these chemicals 
which basically neutralizes the enzymes and prevents the chemicals from being made at all. Oh, wow. That's interesting. All right. So the damage that prompted the pain is still there, but but we no longer perceive the pain. Is that what's going on? Exactly. So painkillers don't actually heal injuries, and they don't even kill the pain, really. They just kill your awareness of pain by cutting off that signal at the source. Wow, that sounds pretty deep. So the pain is still there. We just don't feel the pain. Mm-hmm. But All right. Well, speaking of the pain awareness, how, how does an NSAID know where to go? Like, how is it able to pinpoint the part of the body that's injured? So it doesn't really. Like, the aspirin dissolves in the stomach, and it's carried to all parts of the body through the bloodstream. It's just that the damaged part is the only place it'll actually find pain-related enzymes to bind with. Well, that makes sense. So so what about acetaminophen? Like, it, it doesn't reduce inflammation, then it must be doing something else, right? Yeah, so that's the amazing thing, right? Like, even though acetaminophen was discovered in the 1800s, and it's served as the active ingredient in Tylenol since, I want to say, the 1950s, we still really don't know how it works. I mean, just listen to this physician's note that comes with Tylenol bottles. Quote, Although the analgesic effects of acetaminophen is well established, the site and mode of action have not been clearly elucidated. I mean, that's stunning. Oh, yeah. So basically, like, it's saying this stuff works, but we have no idea how. Yeah, it's so weird. But, you know, they do have some theories. So, for example, it's possible that acetaminophen works the same way NSAIDs do, but it just isn't effective against the chemicals responsible for inflammation. And then there's this other theory that acetaminophen actually affects our sensation of pain by working on the endocannabinoid system, which, you know, you might guess is the same system that responds to cannabis or marijuana. Hmm. So... You know, this is according to researchers at Lund University in Sweden, and acetaminophen activates two ion channels in the brain and spinal cord. And these are the two channels that also respond to cannabinoids. And the weird thing, though, is that these ion channels can actually trigger pain and itch responses. So it's pretty strange that activating them would actually reduce the pain. Yeah, it is. But, you know, like I said, nobody really knows for sure how these all work. Well, you know, you mentioned that acetaminophen has been around since the 1800s. So why don't we switch gears and talk a little bit more about the history behind a few of the common painkillers? Yeah. So, you know, I'm always tempted to start from the beginning and dig into the weird history behind a topic. But with something like pain relievers, it feels like it might be a tad too ambitious. I I mean, pain is something that humans have had to contend with on a daily basis. And at this point, we've actually spent millennia, like, experimenting with different kinds of ways to manage it. It's kind of a lot to cover. Yeah. You, you know, actually, when I was studying abroad in Tibet, we went to the Kirang Valley, which hadn't had much contact with Western civilization. And our professor told us that people used to manage their headaches by putting these pieces of tape on the sides of their heads. <laughs> in fact, if you give them aspirin or, or a Tylenol or whatever, it would actually really, really affect them. And it was kind of funny because marijuana actually grew wild in the fields there. Everywhere. It was all over the place, but no one smoked it as pain relief. They just used these little strips of tape to manage their pain. <laughs> and, you know, maybe it works. I, I didn't actually try you it. You didn't try some tape? Uh-uh. Uh, we could easily devote a whole episode to bizarre pain management techniques that people have tried in the past. Yeah, you, know, you look at everything from, like, boring holes in people's skulls oh, yeah. to banging gongs to scare away painful spirits, which I know you still do sometimes. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but those ancient remedies that have the most bearing on painkillers of today, they're actually the botanical ones. So, for instance, you know, you look at the ancient Greeks, they, they chewed bark and the leaves of willow trees in order to help reduce things like fever or relieve pain during childbirth. Ancient Egyptians did something pretty similar with the leaves from myrtle bushes. You look at the Native Americans, they actually chewed birch bark as their pain-relieving plant of choice. And those all turned out to be pretty great ideas because actually all three of those plants contain high levels of salicylic acid, which is the active ingredient in aspirin. Which is awesome, but... I always thought the active ingredient in aspirin was aspirin. Like, it's not its own thing. 
Well, if you want to get technical, the active ingredient in aspirin is called acetylsalicylic acid, or ASA. You know, see, the, the, the pain-relieving chemical that's most common to all these plants I mentioned also had the unfortunate side effect of wreaking havoc on our digestive systems. So it was a big deal in 1897 when this German scientist who was working for Bayer Pharmaceutical, he was able to synthesize a less harmful and easier-to-digest chemical, and that was this ASA that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So the Bayer company named this new drug aspirin, and it was the first mass-produced over-the-counter pain reliever to come to the market. In fact, the word itself was a trademark term, you know, kind of like Tylenol or some of these others for about 20 years. But after that, aspirin became a generic word for the ASA-based medicine in most markets. Actually, still today, Bayer holds the trademark in in some countries. So what about another NSAID like uh, ibuprofen? Is that the actual chemical ingredient or is it just another trademark term that died and went generic? No, ibuprofen is its own active ingredient, which you'll find in branded versions like Advil or Motrin and Although the chemicals themselves are different, ibuprofen works pretty similarly to the ASA and aspirin. In fact, the man who discovered ibuprofen, his name was Dr. Stuart Adams, he did so while he was looking into how aspirin worked. Now, this was back in the early 1950s. Adams was working in the research department at a place called Boots Pure Drug Company, and this was in (laughs) England. And his goal at the time was to find a new way of treating rheumatoid arthritis that wasn't reliant on steroids and all the side effects that come along with those. So, I mean, at this time, aspirin was already in use, so we've already said it was non-steroidal and and it was great for inflammation. Like, why didn't arthritis patients just use that? Well, they did, but there were drawbacks to any painkiller that we'll be talking about. In the case of aspirin, it usually has to be given in fairly high doses, and that, of course, greatly increases the risk of side effects like allergic reaction or indigestion or, in some cases, even internal bleeding. So Adams and his team were after an alternative that could be better tolerated if, if they were going to be used regularly. And it didn't come easily. I mean, together with a chemist and a technician, Adams actually tested the potency of more than 600 chemical compounds over the course of about a 10-year period. Oh, wow. And I, I mean, you do hear about sort of like a 10-year cycle for drugs coming, to, coming about, but like, was it just like trial and error until they figured out this winning compound? Yeah, it was. And I mean, a few of the most promising ones were actually tested by the team itself, like something you would never see happening today. Huh. And so was the team just knocking back these experimental pills and like they had no idea what sort of damage it would cause? Well, I mean, the handful of compounds they tested firsthand were ones that had already passed the toxicity test, but otherwise pretty much. I mean, in fact, Dr. Adams later revealed that his discovery of ibuprofen was due to him ingesting a promising compound as a way of dealing with a bad hangover. (laughs) So apparently sometime in the early 60s, he was scheduled to give this important speech. But the night before, he had spent some time at the bar, wasn't really feeling up to the task. And here's how he described the event in an interview. He said, I was first up to speak, and I had a bit of a headache after a night out with friends. So I took a 600 milligram dose, just to be sure, and found it was very effective. I love that before he was giving this big speech, he was like, let me just try a little bit of this stuff we've been mixing up. One of the 10,000 different things or 600 different chemical compounds. Yeah, and that the night before that, he was just drinking a lot. Right, right. It's a good strategy. So, I mean, obviously it sounds insane, and it does also sound like a ringing endorsement for ibuprofen as a hangover cure, but... uh. What about some other common painkillers? Like, we should probably talk about some of their strengths and weaknesses as well. Yeah, I definitely want to. But before we do, let's take a quick break. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do 
and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the science behind the world's most common painkillers. All right, Mango, so obviously we lump a bunch of different products into the same category of these non-prescription pain relievers. And one of the biggest downsides to this is that we tend to use them all interchangeably. So I know you were doing some digging into this. So so tell me, what kind of stuff should we consider when, you know, choosing which pill we need to pop? (laughs) So, I mean, a great place to start is whether or not your pain involves any kind of swelling. And if it does, you should definitely go with an NSAID. And from there, it really comes down to what kind of pain you have and if you're dealing with any other conditions. For example, aspirin works well for headaches and for reducing inflammation in joints. But like you mentioned earlier, it can be pretty rough on your stomach. And it's also an anticoagulant, which is why it can reduce the risk of heart attack or stroke in some people. But anybody who's already on blood thinners should steer clear for the same reason. All right. So so going back to ibuprofen, what's the deal with that one? So just like Dr. Adams intended, ibuprofen is less irritating to the stomach than aspirin is, 
but it still offers a lot of the same perks. And for someone with acid reflux or ulcers, ibuprofen is a good way to go. It's also particularly useful for dealing with pain from menstrual cramps or arthritis, toothaches, even sprains. You know, sometimes it has better results than aspirin. All right, so what about something like Aleve? That, that's an NSAID too, right? It is, yeah. So the active ingredient in that one is called uh, naproxen, and it's available in doses that are much stronger and longer-lasting than those of aspirin and ibuprofen. And that makes it great for treating inflammation-based pain like arthritis or even something like sunburn. However, there are downsides to naproxen strength, and one of them is that it can cause gastrointestinal problems, and it can also take a while to kick in. So because it's not fast-acting, it's not actually a great choice for quick relief from something like a headache. All right, so there's some nuanced differences between the different NSAIDs that might make you pick one over another in some cases, but it it feels like for the most part, you know, any of them would do the trick for common pains or inflammation, but but that's not really the case with acetaminophen though, right? Yeah, so acetaminophen is really the odd man out among these common painkillers. It lacks the anti-inflammatory properties of its NSAID counterparts, but, you know, for simple pain relief, acetaminophen does have a few things going for it. For one thing, it's generally very easy on the stomach. So for people with stomach sensitivities, like acetaminophen is probably the first thing they reach for when a headache pops up. It's also not an anticoagulant like aspirin is, so it's safer for hemophiliacs or people on blood thinning medications, as we talked about, or even for kids. It's interesting that acetaminophen is the safer choice in some cases because isn't that the one that's supposed to be really bad for your liver? Yeah, so taken regularly or to excess, acetaminophen can actually cause some serious damage to the liver. It's the top cause of acute liver failure in the U.S. I I didn't realize this before this episode, but, you know, a big reason for that is that it's all too easy to overdose on acetaminophen. And the recommended dosage for pain relief and the amount needed to overdose aren't actually that far apart. So according to the CDC and FDA, between 50,000 to 80,000 people in the U.S. head to the emergency room each year due to acetaminophen overdose. Oh, wow. So it's just super easy to take too much of it or what? Yeah, it's partly because acetaminophen isn't confined to just Tylenol. Like it crops up in over-the-counter cold and flu remedies. And it's also in prescription painkillers like Percocet. So people who don't pay close enough attention to the labels might unknowingly consume more than the recommended doses. And because the drug can accumulate in your liver and also your bloodstream, even taking slightly too much acetaminophen over the course of a few days can lead to an overdose. It's this phenomenon called a staggered overdose, but it can be every bit as deadly. Well, we were talking about acetaminophen being hard on the liver. So so given that, I'm guessing it's not that helpful when you're trying to fight something like a hangover, right? Oh, definitely not. I, I mean... Tons of people are probably popping a couple of Tylenol after a night of drinking in the hopes of warding off a hangover. But this is one of those mistakes that comes from using painkillers interchangeably because taking acetaminophen with alcohol, even just a little bit, is actually a terrible idea. Really? So so why is that? So this is a little tricky, and Gabe actually walked me through it. But basically, because the drug is mostly metabolized in the liver, where it's joined with something called uh, glutathione, It's then turned into this non-toxic compound that can be removed later through urination. However, alcohol is actually known to reduce the liver's glutathione levels, and when acetaminophen is metabolized without it, the drug turns into this far more toxic substance. And this is actually bad news for your kidney. So one study showed that taking the recommended dose of acetaminophen with a small to moderate amount of alcohol can actually increase the risk of kidney disease by 123%. Hmm. All right. Well, so obviously common painkillers aren't as across the board safe as, you know, their over-the-counter status might make you think they are. Mm -hmm. We talked about NSAIDs, you know, their ability to wreak havoc on your stomach lining and 
the fact that the regular use of acetaminophen can cause permanent damage to your liver or even your kidneys. And with those risks in mind, I do think it's good to point out that these pain relievers, they're not meant to be long-term or daily treatments. In fact, people who regularly take these medications for headaches actually put themselves at risk for something called rebound headaches, which are caused by the drugs wearing off. Yeah, so I I think it's a smart idea to occasionally take stock of your over-the-counter drug use. Like, if you're taking something that you use daily for the same reason, then you should probably consult your doctor about other treatment options. Like, there could be an underlying issue that's just being masked by these painkillers. Yeah, that's good advice for sure. And all right, well, if you don't mind, I kind of want to switch gears a little bit. You know, we've talked a little bit about the medications that that are or not helpful for drinking alcohol, but there's there's actually a recent study that suggests alcohol itself is a pretty good way to manage pain, you know, perhaps (laughs) even better than some of the painkillers we've talked about. Well, I mean, you do sometimes hear about alcohol as a way to dull or numb pain, especially in country music. And (laughs) since we've already established that's basically what painkillers do, I, I guess it does make sense. Of course, if you were to regularly use alcohol for pain management, you'd run into similar long-term problems as with NSAIDs or acetaminophen. Absolutely. I mean, it's an interesting study, and it might be good to know in a pinch, but I doubt any medical professional would actually recommend drinking as a way to treat chronic pain, (laughs) and I'm pretty sure that we should not go on the record as suggesting that either. No, we're not suggesting that, but uh, tell me what the study said. All right, so researchers at the University of Greenwich in London, they gathered volunteers for a study on pain and alcohol. And they found that the participants reported a reduced sensitivity to pain with every drink consumed. And this is actually the interesting part. Like, the effect was cumulative. So after three drinks for men and two for women, the participants' pain thresholds rose from small to moderate slash large. Now, according to the researchers, this pain-relieving effect on alcohol on pain intensity is comparable to opioids and actually more powerful than acetaminophen. Wow. So do we know why that's the case? They really don't know exactly why. I mean, the researchers suggested that the alcohol may block the transmission of pain signals, you know, to the spinal cord. But alcohol's anxiety-relieving properties could also be a part of this as well. But either way, it's a little dangerous that alcohol is as effective as it is in relieving pain. I mean, you know, swapping chronic pain for alcohol abuse isn't exactly trading up. Right. And that potential to create a whole new problem is one of the biggest dangers with self-medicating. But You know, uh, amazingly, we're not even the only animals to try this. I found a few examples of other species that take their health into their own paws. But before I tell you about that, why don't we take a quick break? A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. 
At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Mango, so what's the drink of choice for these self-medicating animals that you talked about? <laughs> like, do they stick to beer and wine, or do they go straight to the hard stuff, or what's their strategy? <laughs> so there is a species of monkeys in Uganda that's believed to self-medicate for pain, but they're not hitting up the bar to do it. Instead, they consume massive amounts of tree bark, which is what humans used to do with willow bark, right? So a team of ecologists studied a troop of colobus monkeys, some of which were infected with a parasite called whipworm. And the team noticed that the infected monkeys spent way less time moving and grooming and even mating than the other monkeys. But they also ate twice as much tree bark as them, even though all the monkeys stuck to the same feeding schedules. All right. So sick monkeys were purposefully eating more bark than usual. That's what you're saying. But, Mm -hmm. I mean, couldn't the sickness have just made them hungrier? Yeah. I mean, it could be a coincidence, but it would have to be a pretty big one. Seven of the nine species of trees and shrubs that the sick monkeys ate from are actually known to have pharmacological properties. And those are the same plants that local humans actually use to treat illnesses, including the whipworm illness. All right, so maybe not a complete coincidence. It's just weird to think, though, that some animals might knowingly take medicine for their illnesses, though, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, self-medicating monkeys are one thing, right? Like, they aren't that far removed from us in terms of evolution. But there's another team of researchers out at the University of Helsinki that claims to have found the first evidence of self-medicating insects. So here's how an article in Scientific American broke down this discovery. When the biologists exposed hundreds of Formica fusca ants to a dangerous fungus, many of the infected insects chose to consume 4 to 6% hydrogen peroxide solution made available for the experiment. 
Healthy ants avoided the household chemical, which can quash infections in small doses but is otherwise deadly. The sick ants that partook were less likely to succumb to the grips of the fungus. Huh. I mean, I guess it is pretty telling that only the sick ants drank the solution, but what about in the wild? Like, it's pretty different. It's not like hydrogen peroxide is growing on trees or anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's true. But the compound does grow inside some plants. So researchers theorize that wild ants infected by the fungus might actually be able to find relief by eating plants that release hydrogen peroxide in order to fight off aphids. That is pretty cool. But, you know, actually, the animal kingdom isn't just a place for us to watch to, like, learn how to manage our pain. It's actually a place to go as a source of pain relief in some cases. You know, for instance... I was reading about a new kind of painkiller that's derived from the toxic venom of a sea snail. <laughs> so the drug is called, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, I think it's ziconotide, but the really standout name belongs to the snail itself. It's called the magician's cone. <laughs> that is pretty sweet. And, you know, I'm always curious about this. I, I know we mentioned it a little yesterday with that viper from Brazil, but how does toxic venom make for good medicine? Well, this one works actually by blocking calcium channels and the specific nerve cells. And that prevents certain pain signals from reaching the brain. And so this makes it super useful for treating patients with pain that isn't that easily managed by traditional methods. I mean, you're talking about things, people suffering from cancer or AIDS or, you know, several types of neurological disorders. They, they've seen positive results with this sea snail painkiller. Huh. But if scientists have their way, this won't be the only venom-based pain reliever that's out there. Currently, research is underway to make use of tarantulum venom, too. Huh. And if it's successful, we could be looking at a whole new kind of painkiller, you know, one that can treat severe pain without the risk of addiction. Which is super exciting. And the animal kingdom isn't even the only place to find these kinds of breakthroughs because plants are actually doing their part as well. Both marijuana and salvia are promising candidates for non-addictive pain relief. And even the pain-dulling chemical capsaicin that's found in chili peppers is on the table as a potential painkiller. Yeah, that's true. And, and really, there's a greater need for treatments with that kind of potential than there ever has been before. You know, I was looking at some of the statistics from the Institute of Medicine, and apparently there are over 100 million Americans currently suffering from some form of chronic pain, which amounts to as much as $600 billion a year in medical bills and lost productivity. Huh. And obviously, when dealing with pain that's that severe, these over-the-counter drugs aren't always going to cut it. And that's why we're currently dealing with things like the opioid crisis in our country now. So when the best tool for managing high pain levels is highly addictive and debilitating in its own right, I mean, you know it's time to find a better way. Absolutely. And one of the most promising alternatives I've actually heard about comes from this really unexpected place. Mango, even more unexpected than my magical cone sea snails? <laughs> yeah, even more than uh, magical sea snails. But, uh, you know, there's a growing number of hospitals that are out there looking into how virtual reality could be used for pain management. Like the clunky headsets, like yeah, playing video games yeah, exactly. and stuff like that? So uh, clinical researchers have already had success using them to treat panic attacks and other psychosomatic disorders. And now they're actually starting to explore the tech's applications for treating pain brought on from everything from, like, joint injuries to even cancer. And so far, trials with a pair of the 3D goggles have been proven to reduce patients' experience of pain by a full 25%. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there's also hope that the technology can be extended to chronic pain sufferers who would typically have to look to those addictive prescription painkillers for relief. That's pretty incredible. I mean, can you imagine if someone who had just had surgery or gotten a car accident, they could just be sent home with like a VR headset instead of, you know, like a bottle of Percocet or something? Uh -huh. yeah, that might be a little <laughs> bit hopeful, but it does sound like this could really flip the script on pain management. Definitely. And, and VR treatment actually draws from techniques that have already proven medically effective. You know, things like mindfulness and meditation, but... 
you know, most doctors wouldn't prescribe something like meditation because there's a good chance patients won't go home and follow through with that treatment. And by comparison, pain pills have been a more certain and also more lucrative way to go. But VR, with its promise of fun and escapism, could actually do away with all that uncertainty. Like, patients would be far more likely to actually go home and use it on their own. I mean, that kind of makes sense. But I'm curious, though, like, how exactly does VR relieve pain? Is it just that it calms people down? Because, you know, if if that's the case, it seems like people could just sit there and watch a relaxing video or something like that. So a, a major reason why VR is so effective is that the games and environments it generates are actually a great way to distract your brain. And that level of immersion VR provides, it it actually gives this distinct advantage over, I don't know, just watching a nature video on your smartphone. Mm. And that's because the experience actually shuts off the neural pathways that typically transfer pain signals from your peripheral nervous system. It occupies all the brain's attention, so the sensation of pain is lessened significantly. That's really interesting. And I admit, I was a little bit skeptical of this, but but it sounds pretty promising. And mm-hmm. I do love the idea of overcoming pain, like not through just chemical trickery, but simply giving our brains the freedom to focus on something else. You know, for way too many people, the physical pain they live with is just all-consuming. You know, painkillers, whether they're over-the-counter or even prescription, they're, they're pretty limited in their usefulness because of these side effects and the high risk of addiction that we talked about. So, It is pretty heartening to hear about these new approaches like this that make the idea of a pain-free future seem a little more attainable. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, learning is another great way to keep your mind off pain. So what do you say we conduct our own clinical trial using the pain-killing power of facts? I mean, I'm game for a fact, but I do think we should be clear. Like, the health benefits of trivia are not fully proven. So (laughs) I, I, I think the last thing we need is another lawsuit here, Mango. That's right. All right, well, I'll kick us off. So we've talked about a few things that have these surprising abilities to reduce pain. And here's another one to add to the list. Now, I know it's common wisdom to say that money doesn't really lead to happiness. But, you know, there's no denying that our brains love money. In fact, one study out of China showed that just holding on to it pretty much works like a drug. (laughs) In the study, participants were asked to put their hands into some really hot water. Now, not for long, but still very hot water. And just before doing this, some of them had been given a stack of money to handle, and some were just given blank paper to shuffle through. And sure enough, those who'd handled the money had a higher tolerance of pain. (laughs) That's amazing. Well, you know, since you mentioned hot water, I'm going to go with the cold water test. And, you know, I'm always envious of scientists who get to conduct studies like the one we heard about earlier where uh, they were testing to see if swearing actually reduces pain. And in this study, participants were asked to put their arm in a bucket of ice water and then given certain words to say or shout out loud and see how long they could keep their arm in the ice water. And it turns out that those who were swearing were able to keep their arms in for 50% longer. But, you know, I, I was curious as to whether the specific curse words had different effects, and it turns out they do. Maybe not surprisingly, they found out that the F-bomb was much more effective than using the word bum. The word bum? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I want to meet these people who scream out the word bum when they're injured. (laughs) All right, so we covered handling money and swearing. I think we're making parents really happy today. (laughs) So why don't we do one that's a little bit different? And, And I think we should revisit the meditation thing. And I do know we talked a little bit about it earlier, but there's this study out of Wake Forest that I think was pretty interesting. In it, they found that after just a few days of meditation training, you know, where they help participants focus on something soothing instead of their pain, those in the study actually saw a 57% reduction in what they described as unpleasantness. And they reported that was roughly the equivalent to the effects of morphine. That's unbelievable. 
So here's a weird one, and I, I feel like you'd have to test this to believe it, but apparently if you feel a headache coming on, you can actually eat a bit of green apple or even just smell one to get <laughs> some of the relief from a migraine. And this was a study from the Research Foundation in Chicago, and the researchers believed it's related to the finding that the green apple smell does in fact reduce muscle contractions in the head and neck, which would reduce that pain from the migraine. You know, I think we should do another study where we test what would happen if you hold a wad of cash, you scream the F-bomb, and you sniff an apple at the same time and just see. <laughs> probably feel great. Pure happiness. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, have you ever wondered why we tend to grab our injuries when we get hurt? Like, you know, imagine you have an ankle sprain. What's the first thing that you do? You sit down and you grab your ankle. Mm -hmm. But apparently there's a reason for this. So when we touch our injuries, it gives our brains a chance to map out these injuries and better pinpoint the location, and then more effectively manage the pain. That's fascinating. Okay, well, I, I saved my most important fact for last, and that's the fact that Kenny Loggins and Dean Pitchford actually wrote the title track for Footloose while under the influence of painkillers. <laughs> this is very important. So apparently Loggins had just recently broken a rib while performing, you know, because he likes to leave it all out on the stage. Boy, does he. <laughs> and Pitchford was dealing with a pretty high fever and strep throat. And the two of them would meet up to record, and they only had a few days, so they couldn't let their ailments slow them down. And as Pitchford said, quote, I think it was two or three days we kept up this charade of him showing up on his painkillers and me on my painkillers and us getting the gist of the song. Wow. I mean, can you imagine the magic that may have never happened if they hadn't pushed through and worked on this world-changing <laughs> song, Mango? Footloose. I mean, I may have never had the opportunity to sing that song in my high school show choir. <laughs> I'll pull out the tape sometime to show you and Tristan, or maybe I'll just leave it at my parents' house. But I, I, I'm honestly, I'm not sure I'd be the man I am today without that experience, though. So for that, I'm going to have to give Nonsense. you today's Fact Off Trophy Mango. And if there was ever a fact in my Fact Off win streak, I'm glad that's the one. So congratulations. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> and thank you guys for listening. If we have forgotten any great facts that you'd like to share with us about painkillers or pain management, we'd love to hear those from you. You can always email us, parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com. You can always call our 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS. Or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. We've loved the great facts that you guys have been sending, the great ideas that you've been sending. So please keep them coming. And thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who? A new season of Bridgerton is here. 
And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.